it really does mean a lot to us that so many of you have in these last few years reached out to us, supported our channel. It's been one of the most humbling experiences of my life. The vast majority has been really supportive and genuine connections with people that we never would have found otherwise. And that has been the driving motivation for why I continue. Welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. For those of you listening, audio only, you probably won't hear that much of a difference. Well, you will for Kason because he's uh, <laughs> separate today. He's he's uh, at home, uh, remote. But for those of you watching, uh, this is a totally different location. This is a temporary setup as we move our podcast set into a new location. Um, so bear with us. It's been a huge process and kind of a nightmare for me over the last three or four days to move all this equipment in here and get it set up again. Uh, but it'll just be a couple months and we'll have a really killer set. We have some really, really cool ideas for what we want to do for that. Um, we're no longer in the building we were at before. It's way too far north from where Kaysen and I live. It's not efficient to travel that far every single week over an hour to get there. So this is temporary. Just gives a couple months. We'll have a really, really killer, uh, podcast set. And that is of course, thanks to all of you who support us on Patreon. So thank you for that. If you would like to do that, if you appreciate what we do, uh, Links are in the description, as always. This week, um, because of all the trouble I've been having getting everything moved, I didn't have as much time as I would have liked to prepare for a Tactics Ogre Episode 1 podcast. So, today we're doing a Q&A from our patrons. They sent us a bunch of really great questions. We're just going to kind of go into that. This will be uh, just sort of a casual relaxed episode and the next week we'll get back into uh, tactics ogre okay our first question here comes from mix how would you rank the games you've covered on the podcast perhaps top five which games spoke to mike and case the most from an intellectual as well as emotional perspective uh hmm. what would be your top five games that we've covered on this podcast my my top one would probably be Xenogears. Yes. Of course. Um, that game was an absolute blast. Um, I really enjoyed talking about Jacob's Ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, that was great. Um, of course, the, a game that I have been thinking about a ton lately is Xenosaga. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've been thinking about it a lot, and um, I, I want to play the sequel soon. Um, but that's one that, as I first played it, I was like, "It's you know, it's it's like a pretty good game. Um, it's got some deep concepts." But you know, um, the more time passes, the more drawn back to Xenosaga I feel. Yeah, and then you of know, course, Final Fantasy X was just a blast. That was probably was the funnest one, one yeah. after maybe after Xenogears, but Ten was wonderful. Yeah, we um, we should be getting back to Xenosaga pretty soon. So. After we finish Tactics Ogre, we have Planescape Torment on the right. docket after that. And then we'll be going back to do a vote on Patreon for the next one. And I think that vote is going to consist of Metal Gear Solid 2 against 
uh, Xenosaga 2. I'm just going to do two. Just a one-on-one. Just two. Hey, that'll be... All and right. uh, so you Saga heads got to get on Patreon and make sure it wins because it's going to be stiff competition against Metal Gear Solid 2. Right. But we have people calling for both of those games almost nonstop these days. What are you going to do, Xenosaga 2? Man, this... There's a coming. long list of games that we have to do. <laughs> a lot. Um, though, if I were to rank what we've covered so far. If I'm just ranking like my enjoyment of the game, like the experience I had with it, I'd probably have to say that Outer Wilds was my favorite game to play, but I don't think that was my favorite podcast series. Uh, Xeno Gears would definitely be, I think probably my favorite of the podcast series that we've done. And that would be my second place for one that had most impact or was most fun. I guess to sort of cover after that. So probably Xenogears. Um, Final Fantasy X went really, really well. I think that uh, the way that we got into that, I got way more enjoyment out of that game than I have any other time playing it. Oh, yeah. Um, honestly, I really enjoyed Bioshock as well. I thought that yeah, yeah. it was a real like different game than we've covered before or since um and uh there was a lot there too and, and the fact that um ken levine actually reached out to us after the fact yeah and was, and thanked us for our coverage of that game uh was was really kind of like a highlight i guess of yeah. uh all everything that we've done on the channel so far so what would that be what have i covered so far xeno saga no xeno gears uh ff10 ff10 and then bioshock um the final fantasy tactics one kind of goes under the radar a little bit for me i I don't like remember it super well but it is like i think in total maybe aside from our final fantasy 8 which was which was our very first one Mm -hmm. like the most viewed like consistently all the way through the series yeah, um, people see it was really a really popular one. one. Yeah, and I just love Final Fantasy Tactics in general, so I'd probably say that yeah. one would be next. Yeah, That'd be number four. And then, uh, honestly, Silent Hill 2. I, I really, really liked that one as well. Um, it's a game I haven't That's played in a super long time. About. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know, just again, different. Different from what we typically cover. And... Uh, I don't know. It was, it was a lot of fun. So I'd say those are my top five. All right. This next one comes from Sam Lowe. He says, I enjoy writing on the side and have been tinkering with a fantasy novel that has never really materialized or gone anywhere after years. A big part of why is that I cannot get past doubting myself, worrying that if anyone read it, they would think it was crap and just plain, in, uh, which would just be plain embarrassing. It's to the yeah. point where I don't think I will ever be finished or publish it, even if it was like ready, right? I would try to do it under a pen name so that nobody knew that it was me. The <laughs> subject matter isn't even anything embarrassing, but I just can't get past the self-doubt. How did you get past this or learn to ignore that specific voice in your head? Any advice other than to stop thinking this way? Um, <laughs> of so course, that is advice number one. This actually ties into another question we've got from someone else. It's basically the same thing now that I'm looking at it. Um, 
so I kind of want to read that one too while we're at it. But it's basically, how do you get over imposter syndrome? And that came from... Oh, oh, there we go. From from Devin Perry. How do you get over imposter syndrome? I'm a uh, prospective filmmaker, videographer, etc. And I actively discourage myself from working due to imposter syndrome. It's borderline crippling. Um, have you guys run into this in your careers and what mental work did you do to get through it? Those are kind of similar questions or they're adjacent. Mm -hmm. So figured we'd answer those in one go. Um, do you have any thoughts on that first? Yeah. First off on the second one, the imposter syndrome in particular, um, yeah. there's a great, uh, there's a great series called everything is a remix. It's actually old. It's like 10 10 years ago, some guy made mm. it. I think he put it up on Vimeo initially. I don't know. You can probably find it anywhere now. It was pretty popular at the time. Um, but once you realize just how little originality there is in the world and yeah. how much um, how much everything is kind of recycled and rehashed over and over and over, um, I feel like, at least for me, that made me feel a lot better about when I felt like I was drawing too much from from somebody else's work and, and pretending that it was mine, you know? Um, yeah. There's a, a lot of artists, very famous artists in particular, Beyonce, she goes around and she uh, steals stuff from people and uses it in her own, in her own music and in her own shows. And it's, you know, you got to worry to the, you know, to some extent about copyright infringement, but for the most part, like everything's fair game, like stories that you've heard before, you can remake the stories and call it a new thing. And, the likelihood is is that uh, you'll be fine if you do that. So as soon as I realized that, like George Lucas basically copied, like shot for shot, tons of old old movies, and like the movies Kill Bill is just completely uh, derivative, copying stuff that's been done over and over and over. And these are Quentin Tarantino and George Lucas. You know, these are some big names. Um, and once you realize that that's what everybody's doing, um, at least for me, that helped me a little bit to kind of get over that. Yeah. Um, I, I wish I had advice to share on this, but I, I don't because I struggle with both, um, tremendously all the time. I mean, I guess maybe that's, that's not the best answer given the fact that we're at least here online, like doing a show, like showing our work to thousands and thousands of people, but it's tough. Um, because I go back to anything. I mean, almost anything that I've made that is older than six months and I hate it. I hate watching it. I hate, uh, revisiting it. There's very, very little that, uh, of the work that I've done that I can look back on and feel like genuinely proud of, uh, without like nitpicking it, feeling like, ah, oh, gosh, we should have done that. I should have done this. Um, there probably are a couple examples of that, but. For the most part, I always end up sort of like hyper-focused on the ways in which it was inadequate. And so I, I wish you the best <laughs> in finding a way to deal with it, particularly if it's so crippling that it's it's getting you to a point where you, you're not releasing any of your work, right? It's like keeping you from doing it. Um, I, I don't know if there's anything specifically I've done to get over the feeling because obviously I'm putting my work on the internet, but 
it ne I, I would say just do it anyways like even though you're not proud of it even though because i mean i that's how i feel but that's the only way you get better is maybe the silver lining in it like if you want to be better than you are if you are feeling like you know your work's inadequate you're not good enough all of this um putting your work out there even though it's scary uh it, maybe just change the way you're thinking about it instead of putting it out there and hoping that you know, people will appreciate the work, do it because you're afraid as, as a challenge of like, I'm going to do something. I'm facing a fear with this. I'm not putting it out there because I expect it's good or because I expect, uh, whatever, for whatever reason, or even cause I want feedback on it, do it because there's something in you saying no. And you just want to like take control of that in your life and be like, no, I, I get to say what I put out there, not my fears or inadequacies or whatever. Um, I don't know, man, I don't have a great answer, but, uh, just do it anyways is, is kind of like the best advice I think anyone could give. Cause you're not going to get over the feeling that's the thing about fears, right? Like you're not going to get to a point where, oh, now I feel courageous so I can do it. Um, courage is about doing something when you're afraid of it, not getting over the fear. Oh, I feel brave now. <laughs> uh, that that's not the way that works. You do something e even though you're afraid. You do it anyways. That's kind of the only the only thing you can do. I saw you um, say something there. I, I did have one uh, thought, which is instead of well, to have a, a specific idea of who you're writing to. Um, I always kind of wanted to write a book, but never made any progress on it ever until I had kids. And um, actually the way I've been approaching my book in general is I'm writing a book thinking of my kids as the audience. And I tell my kids stories all the time. Um, so if you have like one friend or one sibling or one family member, neighbor, somebody like that, one person that you know about uh, and just write the story for them and just write a cool story that they'll like. And you don't have to worry about everyone in the whole world hating or loving your work and whatever pressure that creates. Um, just like tell a story for one person and they'll be stoked. Yeah. They'll be stoked to, uh, to get the story, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if that's not, a then pick a different person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good way to look at it. And, um, I guess as the, as a last part of answering this question, um, my, my novel has not really moved forward at all in probably a year, two years, no, probably two years now. Uh, because of all the same things that you're talking about, I, I feel all of that same, uh, pressure and adequacy and needing to fix it. I, I even paid pretty good amount of money to have it professionally edited and I still didn't feel like it was good enough. And so I didn't send it to very many, uh, you know, literary agents or really try that hard to get it published. Cause I felt like, no, oh, I got to fix it. I got to make it better. It sucks. Blah, blah, blah. So, uh, just know we struggle with the same stuff. Uh, it's not yeah. easy. Okay. Um, the, I should have combined this one with the first question. Um, okay. But there's a couple of added things. So maybe that we can just use this as like a, a, a little bit to add to the end of the first question by mix. This is from, uh, Luciano. Every game movie covered on the channel so far, which has been your favorite. I think we both said Xeno gears, right? Yeah. Um, which did you learn the most from? 
Xenogears. <laughs> Xenogears. I would I would say the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which would you revisit, if any? It's probably yeah. going to be Xenogears, right? <laughs> Xenogears. Yes. <laughs> uh, which did you have the most fun with? Oh. That one's maybe maybe not necessarily Xenogears, although Xenogears would be really high up there. Oh, was a blast, but maybe Final Fantasy X for that one for me. Yeah, Final Fantasy X. Um, which one did I have the most fun with? Xenogears, I can't say I had the most fun with. That one was probably the most stressful because it required, mm. like, the most yeah. research <laughs> yeah. and the it most, did. like, trying so, so hard to be accurate when, like, recounting, you know, Carl Jung stuff. Yeah. And like, and Karen Hornay and well, there was, um, there was, that was the very first podcast we did weekly, right? It was. Yes. There was some added stress there too, yeah, to make sure like, everything was. Smooth. Yeah. Um, geez, the most fun I want to say was probably outer wilds. It was just a mm -hmm. joy, like every single week to play the game and to like, come back and talk about it. Like I was just having a blast with the game. So I, I would say that one probably the most fun to cover probably cause there probably was, there wasn't any expectation in it either. It wasn't like, like with Xenogears, there's tons of pressure or almost expectation from other Xenogears experts out there, right? Like to get it, to get it right, to, to report on it accurately, to get it all, get the story, <laughs> explain the story accurately is just like a huge amount of pressure. But with Outer Wilds, none of that was there because it was our first time playing the game. We were kind of more just talking about how we felt while playing it. It's a more interpretive piece, I feel like, just generally. Yeah. And so there's not a lot you can necessarily get wrong, although we did, but I mean, like in the, in the overall analysis sense, there's less you can get wrong, I feel like, so. Right. I felt less pressure with that one. Okay. Thank you for the question. This one comes from Melanie Tyler. You two seem to have a really incredible friendship. Typically men aren't socialized or necessarily encouraged to deeply or frequently connect with each other the way that you seem to. So it's really lovely to see what are some of the ways that you've checked in with each other and kept your foundation strong for multiple decades now. Um, Ooh, I'm going to lead off with this one and say, um, I, I know for sure that I could be way better at this. It, it comes across, I Me think <laughs> maybe a little stronger on camera than maybe it actually is in real life. And that's because I am an enormous recluse in real life. I, I really struggle with keeping up with people. It, it, I, I'm one of those people where you text me and I might respond like three or four weeks later. A lot of times <laughs> um, it drives my, my family crazy. Uh, yeah. my brothers and, and my parents, they'll text me. I think they, they, they're sort of more understanding about it now, but it used to be more of a problem. Like, like, dude, why are you not responding? And it's just cause I, for me, I just feel a lot of pressure like this whole weekend, getting all of this stuff moved in. I, I mean, I was staying up till three, four a.m. every day, troubleshooting, trying to get it working, trying to set up schedules with the internet guy because it wasn't working up here. That didn't even get fixed until like just a couple hours ago. <laughs> so on oh, top wow. of you know working full time and having deadlines and all kinds of other things, so I tend to get really overwhelmed by just life generally. And so what that does is it makes it to where the thought of connecting, sending messages, checking up on people, hanging out, 
is really an exhausting thought. And so I tend to just avoid, avoid, avoid. So, um, I'm glad that it, that, uh, the connection comes across as being strong on camera. It's, it's what I want it to be. Um, I think that we've been friends long enough now and know each oh, other well enough to where a very long th time. there's so much history, yeah. um, that, that can kind of just like get flipped on. Right. And, and, and there's a real, I guess, uh, uh, chemistry there, but I definitely feel like I could be much better at keeping that connection strong and alive, uh, outside of just like recording this podcast. Right. Gotcha. I, I'd probably um, agree in terms of for myself as well. Um, one thing is is that the hand the hand of fate <laughs> has kept <laughs> us in proximity since yeah. we were like eight years old, and yeah. for whatever reason, uh, we've you know moved around and you know like our parents would maybe take different jobs and we'd end up in different places. We we would always end up really really close to each other, um, yeah. close enough to where you know we were always able to make things work uh, because. Um, I don't know. We just, you know, Mike and I now have a relationship, which is something along the lines of, uh, where we don't, we can even just hang out and not even have to like say much to each other. Yeah. Right. You know, like yeah. it's, and, but it's cool. It's not like awkward and weird, you know, like I've known Mike for so long at this point. It's, it's, um, I don't know. Like there's no. The, the, it is not very common that we will have like a, a misunderstanding or anything like that. Mm. So, and we're both, plus we both bring kind of open, open, <clears throat> like open minds kind of to things. And we both know that as things change, we both changed a lot in 25 years. How long have I known you? Yeah, I mean, um, 1999. So that's 24 yeah. coming up on 25 next like wow, fall. Man. Yeah, the, the wow. I would it would be like late August, maybe early September twenty twenty four would be twenty five years. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Um, but yeah, that's where that comes from. Like you know, um, sometimes you'll see people on podcasts and they're two actors that have been placed together and they have to like figure out how to make things work. But Mike and I have genuinely been you know very good friends for twenty five years. So I mean, you there's just if it comes across on screen, that's why, you know, that's, yeah. there's something you just can't fake. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, again, I just want to, I want to stress like the, reading that comment from you, like made me almost feel guilt. <laughs> I know I could tell in your voice, <laughs> I could tell, but, but just so everyone knows, Mike came, Mike came to my daughter's birthday party this year. Yeah, I did. And anyways, it's not, he's not a total, total hundred percent recluse. What, when I actually get into social environments, I do well, like, it's not like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling all this social anxiety. I'm overwhelmed. I got to leave. I got to run away. Like I can talk and like, you know, have a good time. It's, it's almost just the act of getting there a lot of times where at the end of a day, I tend to carry a lot of stress and stuff like that. And so it can, yeah, it can yeah. feel like, Oh, I, there's no way I can do that. But if I just do it, it ends you up just being believe fine. in yourself. Just believe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, this is, I, I'm glad you, you sent the question because I really do actually want to be way better with this. Um, just before we, we signed on, I, I reached out to a couple of friends I haven't talked to in a long time, uh, specifically because of this. So, um, I'm going to try and be a lot better about it, but, but what Kaysen said, I, I think is, is very true. It's almost like 
that's that's we're at a point where that's not a problem like right it's it's whether it's been five years since we've last talked or whether it's been yesterday um the the time spent together would probably be more or less the same yeah um and, and, and it's true because i have gone much longer periods without talking to your brothers for instance but yet oh, every true. time yeah. You know, I see them again. It's kind of the same way. It's kind of just like you pick up exactly where you left off, as if yeah. there no time had passed. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on to Joan and the Man here. Are there any movies, games, books, or etc. which you personally love but have a difficult time recommending to others because they're too esoteric? Oh gosh, like every book. <laughs> 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 So, so a friend of mine, this is actually um, my brother Parker's wife. She was reading, oh, not Artemis. What was it? Um, she was reading, oh, dang it. The guy who wrote the book of the Martian. Oh, yes. He wrote a space exploration book recently. I can't remember what it's called anymore, unfortunately. Um, Dude, I gotta read but that. it wasn't Artemis, but it's the one where they go to a different like solar system. Um, and I... I read that book on her recommendation basically in like two days because I found the audiobook and I like, you know, double sped it and I just kind of like listened to it at work. And I was able to come back a day or two later because she was vacationing here for like, you know, five days or something. And we were able to talk about the book for the last like couple of days. And so she says, she goes, okay, well, since you read one of my books, um, now I feel obligated. What book of yours do you think I should read? <laughs> my, my initial recommendation was, um, uh, what is it? The, um, his, oh gosh, what is it called now? See, I'm forgetting all my book names now. Um, a history of consciousness by Eric Neumann. What, what's yes. it called? Uh, the history and something of consciousness anyways. Um, and well, I didn't hear back from her for a very long time. So I, I sent her another one back saying, okay, you don't have to read the origin and history of consciousness. Um, maybe instead just read, um, cause I knew she was a psychology major in right. college. I was like, oh, you should read, uh, Ian McIlchrist's uh, The Master and His Emissary. That one's probably more for you. <laughs> Anyways, I, I don't think she read that either because I haven't really talked to her in a while. But it's kind of funny. It's like a little embarrassing. I'm like, why don't I read normal books? Like she would probably, like it was a fiction book that she recommended to me. And right. I just went and read it quickly because I was able to find it. Um, but like the books that I read are either like children's fairy tales because I freaking love those. And I have a thousand of them for my kids. Or just like nonfiction stuff. And so whenever people ask me for recommendations, I give them, but uh, I would say it's a, probably about this success rate in terms of them actually reading it. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say I have an easy time recommending stuff to my friends online because my friends online are people who That's found us story. through the podcast or through our channel yeah. in the past. Right. Um, so they're all people who are interested in the same stuff anyway. But if, if I were to try to recommend anything we've covered on our podcast to someone else I know in real life outside of like Kaysen and maybe your brothers, but even then I don't think, I don't know if like even Parker would be that interested in like Xeno Saga or Xeno Gears necessarily. Yeah, he would have when we were growing up, but I, oh, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> well, I don't know now. Right. Now um, I wonder, I wonder. But uh, maybe Eric would be like maybe the one other person. But again, I, I feel like he just wouldn't really have time for it. But yeah, I mean, 
my parents will, a lot of people, it's not even just recommendations of, hey, you should try this game I'm playing or, or something like that. It's more even just trying to explain what I've been up to, to people who don't follow me. Yes. That like it, it feels or, like I yeah, just, I, I just, <laughs> nothing much. <laughs> like, it, it, it's Rather impossible. Rather than explain, I just, just nothing. I do even, nothing. Yeah, even that is is hard. It's like such oh. a tasking thing to even think to try to explain. Because it yeah. would require that they be familiar with a lot of the stuff yeah. we've been talking about and reading and, and playing and watching. And they aren't. So... We can't, I can't have any real conversation about it because we'd be like, oh, what have you been up to? Oh, I just finished this podcast on Jacob's Ladder, a movie which you've never heard of, will never watch, and <laughs> probably would hate if you did. And, like if you don't understand it, yeah, if you just right. think it's a horror film, yeah. And so, like, I can't, so I might as well just not even bring it up. <laughs> yeah, I've been you noticing know? that the chasm, the chasm of things that I, I used to be so good at relating to other people <laughs> before, yeah. you know, just a few years ago, I am so, I, I don't know where to start now, because often if I ever want to explain, if I want to talk, if we talk about what I want to talk about, there's, it's just not going to happen, first of all, but I, I'd be basically just lecturing them for an hour before they're right. at a point where they can like, oh, they even understand what, what at all I'm trying to convey. Yeah. Um, so, and it's not that it's necessarily high level stuff. It's mostly just like theoretical and like, uh, you know, like, uh, I don't know. It's funny, well, but well, uh, like entry level psychology and, and physics and sure. things, but like still yeah. for the, for the normal layman, even that is just not a conversation they care to have. Yes. You know? I still like, I basically have to start with Freud when I talk to people about this, but I have to spend the first 20 minutes convincing them that even though their idea of Freud is all screwed up because of however they learned him in high school, that they should actually take him more seriously. And I have to like convince them of that first. And then we yes. can move to Jung and whatever else. Right. And it's just like, it's just not worth the trouble really. Most well, of the yeah, time. That, that's lecture is a good word for it. Like yeah. they're coming to me wanting a conversation, but, to have a conversation would require a lecture first. And I, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think anyone's interested in that. So yeah, Not it's so almost much. harder to just have a conversation about what I've been doing in my life, much sure, less you know. try to recommend any of it to somebody yeah. to consume in their free time. So anyway, yeah. this one comes from Devin Perry. Hey guys, any advice on coping? Well, I already read that one. Sorry. Next one, uh, Andrew, uh, I, I, Lind Linden Schmidt, I think is this. Andrew Linden Schmidt, final fantasy seven. When I know it's probably been asked and people yeah. will say it's been done to death, but I think your nope. analysis is pretty much one of a kind. I don't want to hear someone else's analysis. Lol. <laughs> it's not even my favorite in the series, but I think it would be great podcast series. Okay. Um, not never, not never, <laughs> not never is when we're doing FF seven. Yeah. That's um, about all I know. man, it's, it's really, really hard to say when this will happen. There is a part of me that, that if this weren't a partnership in terms of running this channel, I, I, I would be tempted to say never. 
Um, I'm not mm-hmm. going to do that because Kaysen hasn't been involved in the same conversations I've been involved in yeah. or even the general discourse of Final Fantasy VII and has likely not been fatigued to complete oblivion by it like I have. Um, it, it's really, it's really almost kind of a, a touchy subject at this point for me. Not that I am upset that you asked the question. I think it's fine. Mm. And I think it's fine for people to be curious and to wonder when it's going to happen. Um, but I guess it has not only surprised me, but been just sort of generally disappointing and, and again, I don't want to say this in a way that disparages anyone else because I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to say anything about anyone else or their feelings about Final Fantasy VII or uh, the compilation material or the remake project or anything like that. I'm, ju- I'm just trying to get m- my thoughts out there. And, and I really respect a lot, a lot, a lot of people who disagree with me on the topic of the remake. So it's nothing like that. But what I valued about Final Fantasy VII seems to not be in line with what the majority of people who val- who mm. loved Final Fantasy VII back in the day valued about it. Um, because the things that were important to me um, that be retained as far as like the remake project and any sort of sequel or whatever in the compilation those things have not been intact and have been almost subverted on purpose to a point that has been really frustrating for me because it, it's, it, it seems to be favoring things that a lot of other people really loved about it, but not the things that I really loved about it. And so what that has, what, where that has left me is in a position where if people want me to give any commentary on Final Fantasy VII as it stands today in the public discourse and in sort of just like the the general audience's eye, um, what I have to say about it is not valuable to them and and vice versa almost, right? So it's like, I I can't, I, I feel like as badly as I would want to explain my perspective on what made that game special to me and analyze it um, it would be under the lens of the 1997 project alone. And I would not want to include anything outside of that, but that's what everybody else would want. Everybody else would want, um, or or would expect maybe even, well, you've made this. I don't know that they would expect it because we usually do the one game and we purposely make it like, we're not talking about Xenosaga two. We're not talking about anything else, you know? Well, what I mean is, if I'm analyzing some thing about Cloud's character, right, and I uh, and I put it this way based on the text of what's in Final Fantasy VII 1997, yeah, people will come who will watch that podcast and be like, "Well, what about this and this and this from Crisis Core or from the remake or from uh, whatever?" You're not considering that. That's also canon, and that should be considered. Mm-hmm. And so, what you're saying is actually inaccurate. But, but, but I would be purposefully leaving that up because that stuff in terms of what it has added or dare I say, taken away from what I valued about the original game, 
um, is not something that resonates with me or that I would want to focus on or that I think is a retcon or contradictory to the original material. So mm. because of this, it leaves me in a position where I don't think there's anything I could do to make um, a podcast series or a long form analysis that I would be happy with. And also the audience would be happy with. That's fine. <laughs> and, and, and maybe that is fine. Maybe I just get over that feeling and just say what I want to say, but it would mm. certainly be um, something a lot of the audience would not enjoy. And I mean, we've just gotten through that with final fantasy 16, right? We got to the end of right, that. Yeah. And there were a lot of people who were, who were, quite upset about the where we landed at the end of that and yeah. I, i've had I wish at least one of us liked it more i think like i like that it would okay. help it's not a bad game um but the fact that we both kind of landed in a little bit of that iffy territory was uh we should have yeah. brought somebody else on. i don't know <laughs> and 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 here's the thing the 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 core principle upon which we are doing everything in terms to our YouTube channel is mm. meant to be deepening our audience's appreciation for the thing. Yeah. So, yeah. um, I, I, with, with final fantasy 16 going the way that it did, I don't want to ever do that again. I don't right. want to, um, play something and analyze it unless I know it's something that I really, really deeply appreciate and want to help others deeply appreciate. If it's something that I'm going to have caveats or a lot of criticisms for along the way, it's probably just not something we should really even talk about. Okay, um, I know what to do. I know what to do. Go ahead. Very beginning, episode one, we just tell everybody that right now it is December 1997. <laughs> and we are not, this is a time machine. We went back in time. We, we know nothing about anything else relating to Final Fantasy VII except for this one game. And any comments that are about anything in the future, that's just speculation or it's just... It's, it it's hasn't happened. That's not real. What are it you doesn't exist. About? We need to create a, um, a resonant arc cinematic universe where those things... We need to create an alternate timeline is what I'm saying. And we need yeah. to put ourselves into 1997 and review it from that... And just make it very clear. That we are '90s people, and we are not. We we have dial-up internet, and we don't do any of this other stuff that you guys are talking about. Like that, that doesn't make sense to us. Uh, the reason you're receiving this broadcast is because we're actually using magic. It's not not the technology. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But one day you'll understand. Um, that's not a bad idea. Uh, to to at least I, I be think very we can head off a lot of criticism. To be very forthright or transparent right from the start that. Yeah, we are not looking at anything outside of this. And if that's something you want, like this is not the podcast for you kind of a deal. Right. Um, I, I, I would I, I'm open to that. And, and here's the thing. I know we have to do it. So that's why I'm saying the answer can't be never. It would only be never if it was just me myself running this pot like this channel. <laughs> yeah. But that's not fair to case. I want to look at it. I yeah. want to I want to analyze it and yeah. figure out what's going on there. And I really want to hear you, you. What you have just done is make me and probably a lot more people even way more interested in what you would oh, have great. to say in an analysis <laughs> of that game than previous. People already wanted to hear what you had to say. And now if I'm any, uh, any bellwether to go by, uh, people are really interested in what you're going to say now. Yeah. Jeez. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, I'll just say this and then we'll move on because we can't linger <laughs> on this too long. Um, 
it, it's gotten to a point where again, again, I, I don't, I don't, I really don't want to disparage anybody. I really don't. If you enjoyed the remake project and you're excited for rebirth, I genuinely like am happy for you. And I hope that you love it. And I hope it's everything you expect and more and that you just have tons of fun with it. I am not trying to, you know, ruin anybody's fun, which is why I haven't talked about this in a very long time. Um, and why I'm avoiding talking about it, uh, until this remake project at least is over, right? Even revisiting the original at, in any way. Um, but it's gotten to the point where I have lit, I have blocked online any term that has to do with Final Fantasy VII or Final Fantasy VII Remake or Tifa or Cloud or Sephiroth or Shinra or Midgar or Hojo or Materia. Like anything that has to do with that game, I have blocked the term online because I just don't want to see it anymore. I'm so tired of it. Because And you can say maybe that's – and it is probably true. That's just something – that that's on you. That's a you problem you're saying to me. And I'm agreeing with you. It is for some reason. It's hard for me to let go because of how much that game meant to me. Right. And how much there is like a passion in me to want to cover it in, in the way that we would in a podcast series. So I, I, I yearn for that opportunity to do it. It's something I have a, a, a deep passion about but I feel like it just would never really have the result in the end that something like our Xenogears analysis did or any of the others that we've done that people were super appreciative that we covered. And it would not help people's, deepen people's appreciation unless they think exactly like we do, or I should say I do, about this. And I know there are people like that out there and maybe they are the ones I should be making that podcast for, but we're getting older now. The, the, those of us who grew up with the game um, are not in the majority on this. And or, or I should say those of us who grew up with the game and also don't appreciate the direction they've taken with the remake project. We are in the minority on this issue. And I just don't want to be that guy, you know, who who seems to be stampeding or, or, or ruining everybody's fun. That's just not at all what I'm about. And that's not what this channel is about. And so it's a very difficult thing for me to like even come around on like, how would I go about doing that without talking about this at all? Like you say, and making just a strong disclaimer, we're pretending nothing else exists, which might feel yeah. elitist to people. So you lose that way yeah. or you, you open up some dialogue for it, try to discuss why you feel this or this or different or whatever. And then you have the result of what our podcast several years ago when the game came out, the, the first remake game came out. Um, mm -hmm. And just endless, endless, uh, I think really toxic sort of debates and, and people not willing to um, be respectful and, and understand where we're coming from and it's just not something I want to deal with again. So, um, how do we come around on this? Like Casey um, said, not did, never. Did you say, do you have any 1990s shirts left? <laughs> I an Aquabat shirt and a Metallica <laughs> shirt. Let's just let's just legit like change your hair. Pretend actually, my hair fits 90s pretty well. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, just 
just like make it as believable as possible. Let's broadcast in standard def. Like let's interlace the yeah, dude. <laughs> the, um, I could I really could put the uh... into the nineties, like physically transport them to the nineties. Yeah, let's do like a four three aspect ratio. Yes. Um, let's do the uh, you know all those CRT filters that Beardmo helped me set up. Yes, we could, we and could uh, run it through lines that. as if it's a VHS yeah. tape or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, we'll just make it look like we shot it in the 1990s. And then, and we'll, like, we'll come, come on, that. dudes! Like, what this was filmed? Like, what do you? Don't give us modern criticism. <laughs> this is a <the> video. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on here. We got Thomas. Yeah. In games and in films, the trend of remakes, reboots, and reimagining of existing IPs seems to never end. I've tried to attribute the similarity of a Shakespeare play being set up again and again uh, by new theater companies and groups, but theater right. is the art of the moment and in a way is always new. So that's kind of the way it is, right? When it yeah. comes to games, you have the argument of introducing an older IP to a new generation, preservation, nostalgia, and the high cost of new games, etc. Apart from the practical arguments, you have the thing that perhaps our culture is not doing so well, and it is reflected in the lack of new stories. In the indie space, there are, of course, new experiences to be had, but in the AAA space and the companies with a legacy, it seems to me, they are more prone to hash out a remake, remaster, or AAA game that feels like every other. What do you think and, uh, what do you think and why is the cause that we are in this remake reissue of older titles era? I just saw a thing the other day. Mm -hmm. Who was the publisher? It was, I can't remember the publisher. I really can't. I wish I did. I wish I had like saved this so I could look it up right now, but I didn't realize this question was coming, but it was basically a tweet, an article that was, that was, uh, saying, um, modern audiences are only interested in remakes and sequels. And so we will no longer be making new intellectual properties we'll be focusing our efforts efforts on existing popular franchises and uh remakes going forward it sounds like um hollywood has come to a similar conclusion yes. and i i i think i know the reason why yeah the reason why isn't because uh creators are bankrupt you know creatively bankrupt right now it's not because there aren't great news stories to tell, or even that the people making these projects would rather be doing new stuff. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the fact that for some reason, the, the ballooning costs of the most cutting edge uh, film, I don't, I don't want to even say cutting edge as much as just um, technologically advanced mm -hmm. uh game development and, 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 uh, you know, movie making is what makes the biggest money. So we want to make a billion dollars on this movie. So we have to have, we have to spend this much money on these extravagant freaking <laughs> high concept, uh, heavy CGI and like, you know, concepts. And in order to mitigate the risk as much as possible on that, it needs to be something a huge amount of people are already familiar with and excited about. Instead of just saying, let's make a, um, 
let's make a new story or a new a new game or whatever as a big studio but let's put in let's like scale down on what we would typically do for like the biggest budget possible thing let's limit ourselves on purpose let's scale the team down and let's do something where we're really limited and see what comes out of that creatively right we're only spending this much but the great thing is then you don't have to make a billion dollars on the project right. for it to be successful and then it becomes over time a known property and one that people are excited about and it grows into that it's almost like they want that they want what a final fantasy 17 could sell in a forespoken some like brand new ip so they're going to put all the same resources all the same amount of money all the same completely out of control ballooning team sizes <laughs> and and effort into a forespoken game so that it can be this what is uh expected from a triple a project in terms of graphical fidelity and performance and uh, open world and all this other stuff and it's got to look and feel like a Final Fantasy 17, even though it's a brand new thing that nobody's played before. That to me is the real problem. The, the, the lack of a willingness for a behemoth uh, publisher out there who feels like their expectation is to hit this sort of like production quality, right? It's got to be here. So if it's going to be there, then we're going to have this many people that we're going to need to work on it and this much time and this much money. So then in order for it to be profitable, it has to be making billions of dollars. Yep. So we're not going to do that on an, on an, on a new thing. That's only going to be possible on call of duty 76 or <laughs> whatever. Yeah. And so if they would just be willing to scale down, um, I think Hellblade is like a really good example of what I'm talking about. Yes. You can be cutting edge on some things. It doesn't have to be everything. You can be yeah. cutting edge on some things and create a moderately successful game that generates you money because it didn't cost you $30 billion yeah. to make. Yes. Hellblade Senua's yeah. Sacrifice is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. You can make something that feels pretty close to yeah. a triple A experience, but it's got a concept that scales it down to such a degree that a small team could make it. And then from there, when that becomes a huge success, cause the concept was so unique and it was unlike anything people had seen in a lot of ways, then Microsoft comes in and buys that company and wants a sequel to it. Like that's how you do it. You don't start right. Hellblade with the same budget as call of duty. You right. start Hellblade as something smaller. You, you polish it in the ways that you can, but you scale it down to fit. Uh, and, and, and I feel like when you're limited like that and all the research I've done on final fantasy, uh, development history, they all say the same thing. They all sort of miss the pixel art super Nintendo and NES days because they were so limited back then they couldn't yeah. do whatever they wanted. And they felt like they were more creative in that time. Oh, for sure. That's exactly yeah. what that does. So yep. go ahead. No, I totally agree with you. Laws, laws, certain laws produce freedom, right? Like freedom 
um, you would think that freedom means zero constraints, but no, freedom means some constraints that can direct you to be able to do, um, you know, to, to be more free to express yourself within certain constraints. Actually makes the art more better, more believable, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I was, I've always said in the past, like, um, I like Harvest Moon 64, but if Namco, or is it Bandai Namco? If uh, they had, or Natsume, Natsume. Natsume. If Natsume had to make um, Harvest Moon 64, but in the style of Super Harvest Moon, then it would have been Stardew Valley, something like that, right? Yeah. Um, instead, they scaled the world really down and they made Harvest Moon 64, which is a great game. Um, but they could have had a grander scale. They could have really outdone themselves in a different way. Um, but instead, they always had to be on the on the cutting edge all the time. Um, and I feel like if, if, maybe it's maybe it's an image thing. Maybe Square Enix doesn't want to be viewed. I think that's exactly what it is. Yes. That makes like not the best looking games out there. I mean, they so did they have, have these, they like, did, they have party. tried, they have tried like with that other studio that made enough. like, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and those didn't do super well. And so they, Not even really. they have said recently, we're no longer focusing on the mid budget stuff. Um, right. But it's like, maybe they overspent on those. You really yeah, didn't I think they to did. Yes. It, it's about scaling down, scaling down, scaling down, scaling down concept, everything right. scaling down finding something that's super unique and creative that doesn't cost a lot of money. And so then therefore, if you lose, it's not a huge risk. Um, I, I, I think that's, that's really the answer that more big developers, you, you still have your tent poles. That's the whole point. You still have your call of duties and you still have your big final fantasy releases. Those still happen, but you should be able to have like, uh, in the periphery of that, like three or four other creative projects going on yeah. that, you know, one of those might break out. And know? honestly though, Nintendo is really good at this. Yeah, they are. So you're still getting, I don't know. Nintendo is good at making these games that they, they feel smooth. They feel tight, you know, but, but it's like a smaller kind of game. Like what was that? What was that punching game for the switch? Oh, the, um, I can't remember what it's called. And arms, or, arms, wasn't it? Or, yeah, yeah. Or um, you know, Splatoon, or just whatever they've got going on. They're constantly doing new things, but it it doesn't. Nintendo does not have the expectation that Square Enix has. Nintendo yes. can make a silly, cartoony-looking game, and people people will buy it. But if Square Enix does it, it's like, ooh, Square Enix. This is they must be scaling back. They must be in trouble. They're making cartoony games. Some of it might be a brand management issue. Yeah. It's always a management issue. And I think this is actually more the result of a, a company becoming publicly traded and having huge expectations ah, yeah. than, than anything else. It's one, once your company is publicly traded, you have, uh, you know, stockholders and investors to please like, this is going to become an issue because they're the ones you got to generate them a lot of money. And I, I, I honestly feel like, it should be illegal to publicly trade a corporation at this point. <laughs> Ooh, geez. I freaking, I freaking hate you, the whole idea of it. I know it. It's like death. It's it's awful. Um, and then a board gets created that usurps power from the original founders, and then they lose the company, and then this board owns everything. But it's designed by committee, which is like a garbage way to design. Um, but investing has been pretty good for the 
pharmaceuticals. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's horrible. But there's <laughs> there's some industries. Anyways, for the most part, I, I totally agree with you. All right. Let's fly through some of these here. Okay. Wesley Rhodes. I have two questions if it's okay. First one for Kason. What is your favorite part of uh, learning a new language? Speaking, reading, or listening? My first, my favorite part or my first part? Favorite. Favorite. Gosh, listening, because I enjoy um, consuming media and the like in, in that language. Um, reading, I don't know. Um, reading's fine. If I'm reading it out loud or if I'm following along while I listen, um, I do not usually enjoy speaking. I've become very self-conscious when I speak, um, but I really, I do enjoy listening quite a bit uh, because I'm I'm not necessarily learning a new language in order to, like, it's, it's nice that I can now communicate with other people. It's very nice and it helps and I do it a lot, but I'm mostly doing it so that I can learn from that culture uh, more directly or I can learn about that culture more directly or so I can consume uh, media and other things from, uh, that culture, uh, that I want to have that kind of a, an experience. Um, and less so that I actually really want to get to know people, <laughs> uh, mm. from that persuasion. Um, lately I've been reading, uh, Beowulf and I've actually, I've slowly realized that I have an old English and uh, modern English translation has both. Um, and I've slowly realized how difficult it is in looking at, in learning old English right now how hard it is to preserve the poetry of something like that across the languages. Oh, really? I remember, oh, yeah, really hard. Oh, once I heard um, somebody from Japan or Korea was learning English, and they said the reason they wanted to learn English so bad was so they can read Shakespeare in English. And at the time, this was probably more than 10 years ago, at the time I was like, just read a translation of Shakespeare. It's the same thing. Like, come on, like, what's the big deal? You can, wh why do you need to read it in English, right? But the more that I've been, um, you know, immersing myself in this kind of stuff and specifically reading poetry, getting into things like Goethe's Faust or Dante's Inferno or Beowulf, I'm slowly realizing like, whoa, there's actually, I actually um, am beginning to value heavily the experience of these texts um, in the original language. Mm. Uh, but I do, I do just want to emphasize that for me, it's not so much about speaking to other humans. Um, yeah, at least that's not what drives me, what yeah. really drives me. Cause I just, I just live here in Utah, you know, <laughs> I, I don't, I have no need for that. What really drives me is to experience another culture, um, is to listen, um, to, you know, kind of, live and see how they live and it's you know i've got that kind of approach to it sure um he also asks he's going to japan is there anywhere that you would uh, recommend that he visits oh while he's there gosh. everywhere <laughs> i've been from hiroshima up to chiba i don't know it's there's a lot there like go to kyoto go to osaka osaka was my favorite city by far osaka mm. is so much fun there's so much to do there it's a little more fun than tokyo it's a little more happening it's also a little more authentic japanese than tokyo um tokyo there's english on the street signs you know like you can get by tokyo pretty well without knowing any japanese um osaka sort of that way but less so and then kyoto and then nara nara is a city kind of in between osaka and kyoto that um is where all the old old japanese temples are it used to be the capital of japan like 600 years ago. Hmm. So yeah, check that out. For Edo. 
Yes, before the Edo Jedi. Hmm. The Edo era. Um, then he asks me if uh, when I'm writing a character who's like going through a difficult experience, if I try to emphasize with them or feel the same emotions. I do. Um, and that's why, for the most part, I, um, I listen to music while I write. And I have specific playlists that elicit specific emotions for me. So I've, I've, I've talked about this a little bit in a video I did about how music moves us, how music affects our emotions. And um, I explained a little bit more there, so I'd maybe recommend watching that video. But specifically music for me is almost more of a spiritual experience than it is um, like an analytical or secular one. Like I, I've always... I've, I've just never had the desire, like I can read sheet music, but I don't like to do it. I like to feel music and learn it by ear and like, kind of just like connect with it rather than like, uh, put it down on paper with notation and like analyze it. I, I'm the total opposite with music than I am with say like storytelling or something like that. So. I, I play music in the background to make me feel an emotion. And then I try to write, uh, what the character, like the character's dialogue, I let it come to me through that emotion. So that's kind of the way I, I try to approach, uh, writing. So I'm always listening to something at the same time, as far as music goes. This one comes from Netro, who we have not heard from in a long time. Thank yeah, you so much. I've, for, I've heard a few names here out. that I'm like stoked about. <laughs> How are you doing, Netro? Thanks for the comment or for the question. I remember you guys talking a lot about what a Zelda movie could be with its recent announcement. I don't even know if you heard of this. Yep. Oh, uh, yes, uh, there are whispers. A movie and, being yeah. in the works. What are your current hopes and expectations, if any, for it? Well, they have said specifically it is going to be live action Zelda. Yep. Um, so it's not my, my, my hope was cartoon. Okay, well, given the, given the uh, nature of the what was it, a PR release, whatever it was. Um, I'm thinking, uh, gosh, I just, I don't know. I hope they don't screw it up, but I also don't really care to watch it. I, I very reluctantly watched the Mario um, Oh, yeah, this, I didn't the see Mario movie. It's good. It's fun. Um, I'm glad I watched it, but I held off for a long time, and I didn't really, I just didn't really care to watch it. Um, it's fun. It's funny. It's interesting. Um, I'm actually afraid that they're going to do to Zelda what they did with Mario there because it works for Mario. Um, you know, just the silliness, the funniness. Um, if they go that way with Zelda, I don't know. I just, if it's bad, it's bad. I, I mean, I, I'm not that excited about it. We'll put it that way. Yeah. Um, so to kind of touch on what he was alluding to there in the beginning, uh, there was a time where Kaysen and Landon and, and his brother, or Kaysen and his brother Landon and I, who were all working on the same YouTube channel together at the time. Yeah. Um, began the process, the pre-production process of writing a live action Zelda movie. We were kind of, it was a big dream of ours to be the directors of, a, of like a big live action Legend of Zelda film. Yeah. We, we watched, we were watched very excitedly the projects other people were doing at the time to yeah, kind of see yeah, what the they fan, did. And yeah, the fan, film, fan made yeah. films, right? Um, I would say the closest we ever really came to achieving that particular goal was we did a short film on, um, on Skyrim 
that was yeah. done on a, a fairly large budget for Machinima Prime at the time. Yeah, for what um, it was, yeah. We felt like we were cutting our teeth, or at least I did at the time, on what we really wanted to do, which was like a, a high fantasy, like epic film in the vein of something like Lord of the Rings uh, for The Legend of Zelda. Um, let's see, how old were we at that time? Probably, I was probably 26 or something like that. I am now 36. <laughs> it has been 10 years plus since that time. And I am now convinced that uh, there, there doesn't need to be any film adaption uh, of a video game at all. It just is not necessary. And in fact, you're losing something integral. Yes, that's what I'm worried about. Yeah. I mean, with The Witcher that was recently done. Uh -huh, now, I haven't and... seen The Last of Us yet. The Last of Us is apparently very good. And I'm not yeah. even saying you can't make it and have it be very good. Like, I think The Witcher could be made, especially since it was, well, that was more being adapted from the books anyways. That wasn't being adapted from a video game. Um, the point is you can do a very good adaption of The Last of Us or some video game. Uh, and, and I would, I would hope, or I would think the purpose of that would be to reach an audience that does not play games. So, um, uh, my dad is never going to play a video game. Um, but if there's a film made and it's a very faithful, really well-made adaption of something I love, that's something I can share with him. He can be like, oh, this is a cool story. However, there is something integral about that you lose in the jump from a game to a movie that cannot be translated. And that is the participation on the part of the player in that role that you take up of that character and, and playing it a certain way, particularly in RPGs. Now Zelda's not an RPG, but how you went about it, the way that the discovery you felt as you explored that world is not the same thing. It cannot be replicated as a film. And so I'm not saying that uh, to, as by any means saying it shouldn't happen. They, no one should go about trying to adapt a video game into a movie. I'm just saying there is something integral that you lose that for me has made me less and less interested in seeing them happen. When I was growing up, that's all I wanted to see was a live action Legend of Zelda yep. movie. Um, that's all I wanted to see was a live action Shadow of the Colossus movie. Uh, it was almost <laughs> like it was almost like that was the ultimate uh, expression or form of the art. And so, if it could if it could escape just being a game and make it to being a movie, it would be legitimized in a way. And I yeah. have totally reversed course on that because mm -hmm. to me, video games are just as legitimate. Yeah. an art form as films. There is no leap to be had there. Maybe it felt a little more that way because we were looking at Lego people <laughs> um, and not like nothing yeah. that resembled a real human being, but now right. they do. And so that, that just doesn't seem necessary to me anymore. The performances are just as incredible, just as heartfelt, just as emotional in games as they are in films um, yeah. from, from actors like real actors on set, with each other, uh, doing performance capture. Like there's just less and less reason I see as time goes on for the necessity to do so, unless you're just trying to talk to people who won't play the game. Um, because 
the people who did play the game, you're just missing like the, a key component of what made that so great by by losing the gameplay aspect, the participation. Um, so I saw this, and I it, it's not even a thing where it's I, I just I felt nothing about it. Like I I felt nothing mm. one way or the other. It's like okay, that's a thing, and that'll come out, and I probably won't watch it, or if I do then cool, I'll reevaluate at the time, but I'm not even going to spend any time thinking about that at the moment. Um, I mostly just hope it doesn't affect the games at all. Like, the movie will come out, yeah, whether it succeeds or not, no matter what happens, I hope the next Zelda game is entirely unaffected by whatever the result of this of this movie are. Because I could see if it's successful, then it's like, oh, now we've got this actor. Like, who's it going to be? Who's it gonna be, man? Is it Zach Efron? Is Zach Efron gonna be Wing? I, <laughs> I don't know. Probably Efron's not. He's voice? too old. Oh, okay, who are, who's popular now? <laughs> I don't know who's popular. Good question. Who are the big shots nowadays? Like Tom Holland or whatever. It doesn't matter. I I just I don't want. I I just hope that it doesn't affect the games. Is mostly what I'm saying. Yeah. All right. Let's do one more, and then we'll stop there. This one comes from. Fausto. Hi guys. Love your content. The Outer Wilds is a game I found, I found really interesting, but don't have the patience for it. Just wasn't my style. So I was glad I could experience the game through your podcast. As for the question, I've noticed mainly during the Xenogears series that I struggle to find deeper meaning or symbolism in games. What do you recommend I can do to get better at this? I think this comes from gaming in the 1990s where there was a strong separation between gameplay and story. Um, for example, in RPGs, I feel that when I go into battle, there's no story or meaning behind it. It's just what you have to do to get to the next real story, the cutscenes. So I'm going to say something real quick and then I'll pass on to Case and who have a lot more to say. Um, as with anything, the only way you can learn to recognize it is to be familiar with it in the first place. So you, you'll have to do some study on symbolism, um, and, and ancient cultures to kind of understand how they used symbols and why in the first place. Uh, before you can start recognizing them in, you know, in, in a game or in a movie or something like that. Um, so it, it would take legitimate like work and research on your part that would be, I mean, months, if not years long, before you'd really start to get to a point of familiarity with these symbols to start recognizing them. Um, so that's that's true with anything. If you want to become good at something, you have to practice it a lot. You have to ingratiate yourself in it. And, uh, and, and, and really, you know, do the work behind that. Um, second thing I want to say is that you have to kind of start flipping your thinking on that latter part of it too, where, you know, and I, I, I'm not, I, I was the same way. I think everybody was when we were younger, especially, um, the gameplay and the story are separate. And, and a lot of that had to do with how games were reviewed, <laughs> Like games, they game reviewers, they always separated the gameplay and the story as almost two separate things to be analyzed rather than trying to, you know, see how they worked together as a whole. That's one thing that we're trying to do a little bit. Uh, of course, we focus more on the story in our podcast, but uh, how does the storytelling or how does the gameplay also um, supplement that storytelling is one of the chief things that I'm interested in when it comes to game design these days. Um, and so start looking at, okay, why did they use that battle transition? Why does the, why does the screen shatter like glass? Is that just an effect? Cause it's cool. Uh, because it's sudden and it's, Oh, we're, we're interrupted in our exploration of the world here. 
why did they use that? Is there a motif that you see in other places in the cutscenes that you're watching uh, that, that connect that? Why would they use that screen transition? You have to start thinking about these things. You have to be, be purposeful in being like, okay, pause. Why did they do that? Let me think about that. Let me, you know, look into that a little deeper. No, all right, now I'll pass it on to you. That's really good. Um, I think a lot of times people enter uh, modern art, especially with the assumption, uh, well, specifically video games and and movies and all this stuff, with the assumption that most of the things don't actually don't really mean anything. Um, that you're just playing the game, and that that's the assumption I think that you need to change um, as you're playing the game is the assumption that how would I put it? You need to assume that everything you see means something. Now that's likely not correct, right? Some things are just there because they're there. Um, but if you start to see the world, assuming that these things are here intentionally, these things are put here on purpose, what could it be saying instead of, um, you know, the way you normally play a game, which is, unless it explicitly points it out to me, I'm not going to read anything into this. I'm not going to assume that this means anything uh, more important, right? But you have to start with the baseline assumption that everything you see was put there intentionally. Because to some degree it was. Now, whether it's saying something deeper, you're going to have to look into that. Um, but even if you're playing FF7 and the, there's like trash on the street, what is that saying, right? If you see graffiti on the wall, what is that saying? Not physically, what is it saying? What is the fact that there's graffiti at all saying, right? Um, so just if you assume that everything means something, you'll start seeing things that you didn't see before. Um, and then you're going to have to scale that back because everything doesn't mean something <laughs> usually. Um, you're going to have to scale that back a bit. But that'll get you to start looking in different places. And as you start noticing different things, you'll start realizing, okay, that square didn't probably actually mean much there. And this circle here wasn't that important. Um, but whenever they use this triangle, it's always accompanied by something else. So I don't know. Maybe triangles mean something in this game. Um, the biggest thing for me, though, is to <clears throat> to ah oh, this is gonna sound I don't know how deep I should go into this one but to to see symbolism in your life um, that's probably the best way uh, that I see symbolism now especially in video games um, is to start with that same assumption that I just told you about that <laughs> this I don't know if you, a lot of a lot of people who listen to us are atheists I understand that um, but if you just have the assumption that everything you see when you go for a walk was placed there intentionally. Everything in the forest, everything in the world, the stars, especially the stars. If you get this mindset of everything here means something, what does it mean, right? That's going to translate to the art that you consume. That's going to translate, because this is why medieval people were so obsessed with things like symbolism, right? They would go to church every, every day sometimes, mostly at least every week. Um, and they were inundated with this idea that the, the cosmos means something. It all has meaning. And then they would go about their lives farming and, and the soil and the stars at night and the plants and everything means something, right? And we don't have that in modern society anymore. Um, you know, people tend not to um, be as religious, tend not to go to church as much, tend not to um, think that the universe is speaking to them unless you're like a hippie, I, I don't know. Um, but for the most part, a lot of people tend not to have this experience of the world that people have had for a long time and that artists are still trying to convey because every game that you play, things are intentionally put there. But then you try to live this life where, oh, nothing's intentional and everything's just random, right? Um, but there's a disconnect when you do that. And if you're able to find some way of connecting your real life with a story that means something, um, 
then you're going to start to see that in the art as well, because that's exactly what artists are doing. And most artists will tend to draw from a tradition or a religion or something like that for their symbolism. Um, and that's part of the, part of the reason that, um, uh, that I've been able to read a lot of symbolism and, and Mike as well, you know, the, the environment that we were raised in uh, was very much that type of an environment. Um, and I still feel like I live in that world, right? Where right. everything means something and I can go out and look at the stars and have a deeply meaningful experience. Um, the way that uh, most people would be like Pumbaa from The Lion King saying, oh, that's just a, billing, a burning ball of gas floating billions of miles away. Like It doesn't mean anything to me. Um, but, you know, in my opinion, that's wrong. So Yeah. All right. Thank you, everybody, for your questions. We really appreciate you. There was a few more I had, but we don't have time to get to them today. Um, I just want to say again, um, it, it really does mean a lot to us that so many of you have, in these last few years, reached out to us supported our yeah. channel. It's been one of the most humbling experiences of my life. Uh, going Even going back maybe full circle to the first, uh, not the first question, but one of the first about getting over your um, your imposter syndrome or, or your fear about not being adequate enough, right? Um, a lot of, a lot of, sure, a lot of things that we've received in in the course of us being on YouTube has been a lot of criticism and uh, maybe even harsh criticism or hate you might call it but the vast majority the vast has majority. been really supportive and genuine connections with people that we never would have found otherwise and that has been the driving motivation for why I continue the people that we meet, we talk to, that we've brought on our podcast and had on as guests um, have been some of the most profoundly interesting humans I have ever encountered. Yeah. <laughs> and that never would have happened uh, without the support of the audience, without you guys watching, sharing, commenting, reaching out to us, and uh, of course, uh, supporting us so that we can you know, continue to try to make the show better. So thank you. Thank you to everyone who, do, who does that, particularly the patrons who asked these questions today. And um, we hope you're ready for Tactics Ogre next week. I hope I'm ready for Tactics Ogre next week. I hope I have <laughs> more time to get around to it. But uh, we're going to do our best. So um, thank you very much uh, for tuning in, and we'll see you again next time. Peace out.